As a leader, it doesn't really genuinely believe in where you're taking the company. That will come through and you won't get the team with you. But if you genuinely believe that what we're doing is the right thing, people will listen. That's the voice of Nikolai Sorensen, CEO of Orexo Therapeutics. Listen in now to hear my conversation with Nikolai, his thoughts on leadership and how Orexo is helping patients with substance use and mental health disorders. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Nikolai Sorensen, CEO of Orexo, headquartered in Uppsala, Sweden. Nikolai, welcome to BioBoss. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. How did you find yourself as CEO at Orexo? I feel now like I'm coming home. So this is um, uh, being, a, being at Orexo, it's, it's a very small company. My background is I worked with uh, two very large US-based companies. I worked with Fights, I worked with Boston Consulting Group. And and coming to a small Swedish company who, when I joined, were basically a research organization um, and being able to turn it around. It's uh, been a big pleasure. And I, and I think today my personality is quite a lot of association with Orexo. So, uh, and of course, I've been the CEO now for six years. So where Orexo is today is, is very much my fault, or, or I guess I can take some credit for it also. Did you foresee this as a, an aspect of your career earlier in life? Did you say, yeah, I'll probably end up being a CEO at some point? When I was, uh, I think, 12, 13 years old, my, my primary school had this week, theme week, where you could take different positions in, in kind of in virtual companies. Uh, and you could choose whether you want to be a chef and serve lunch or whether you would uh, do uh, different sports sessions and others. Uh, but I chose to become the CEO, so I, I took on my father's way too big suit and a, and a tie, and then I was the CEO for a week. So I guess my, my since then, when I was 12, 13 years old, my my destiny has been given. Um, so so I, I am an MBA of, um, from Copenhagen Business School, and um, I think the business route has been, been my target since quite a young age. How did you decide that if you're going to be a CEO, that it was going to be of a biopharma company, or is that just a natural progression? I think it's, it's coming a little by chance. So my first uh, uh, job after business school was with Boston Consulting Group. Uh, and when I worked at Boston Consulting Group, uh, we just happened to have quite a lot of work with life science in, um, in, in the Stockholm office. And when you suddenly get down on that track and in the beginning, that was more due to I got allocated to that track, but the more I worked there, the more specialized I got. So to, to leave Boston Consulting Group and, and actually take a, a leadership position in a pharmaceutical company became quite natural because I worked a lot in life science. Uh, but I could have probably started in Boston Consulting Group and worked in financial services or manufacturing, and maybe I would have sit, been sitting in a different place. Uh, but that, that said, uh, I do come from a family where my father is a professor in medicine, my mother is a nurse, my sister is a psychologist. So there's a lot of, of having grown up in, in a life science environment, you can say. So you must have been, I'm just guessing, exposed to many, many different companies in life sciences through your consulting work. When you were thinking, seeing a path forward towards directing one towards being the CEO, did you have to, did you find yourself sifting through hundreds and hundreds or did one or two quickly make their way to the fore and was it clear where you wanted to? I think my, my first career path going into life science came, uh, uh, that was with FITSA. So I, I started working with FITSA in, in Sweden, um, first in a, 
in a business development like role they had just acquired from ASEA and, and needed to to basically do this post merger integration, clean up the portfolio. Uh, and I had this rather broad mandate, but you can say working more like less like consultant with integration of the two companies from the internal side. Uh, then after a few years, I became the country manager and, and managing director of fights in Sweden. And then I moved international work for fights in London also. Um, so that it, it become fights that was, I think, I, it, that was driven by the event that it come natural as a consultant to take that kind of role. So as you're coming towards the end of your cycle with Pfizer, which I'm sure could have continue for the rest of your life and many lifetimes afterwards. And you were thinking, you know, I think it's time for me to be the head of a, a company. At that point, how did that opportunity at Arexo become clear to you? Pretty early on, I even when I joined Fights, I, I said this is a... So in the Fights, you're very easy. You have a, a huge budget and there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people reporting to you. Uh, but you're still a very small piece of a very big machinery. Uh, and... Already in the early stages as fights, I had my eyes so I would like to work with something where I really had a possibility to influence. And, and maybe that could have happened in fights also, but that would have taken many years and, and definitely a lot of moves uh, out from, from Sweden. So I, I actually talked to several executive search firms to say, so if you're looking at my profile, what would it take for me to start to get calls about these executive positions in, in smaller life science companies? So I can kind of fast track my career from being in a FISA world responsible for a lot of people, but actually in a pretty much a, a middle management level position. And, and they told me that you, what you should look for is a company close to commercialization and, and you should probably accept not to take a CEO position at the first role. So basically take a small step down before you take a step up. Uh, and uh, so when I worked with fights in London, my family was still living in, in Stockholm. So I, I kind of I commuted to London from Stockholm uh, every week, which maybe for some Americans is not that far. But for us here, it's a, a you're crossing several different borders and countries and it takes two and a half hour flight uh, each way so it's a five hour trip door to door uh, and that of course takes a lot of, of hardship from the family and, and for me personally so when when Orexo came with a proposal uh, and said so we have this uh, ambition of becoming a commercial company we're an R&D company today would you like to lead the commercial part as chief commercialization officer I, uh, I found that as as a good proposition and they just had some new uh, large investors coming in and it's actually through one of the investors I got contacted first so okay I say they have the money they have the products they have the ambition uh, if there's any time the time is now so then I, I jump ship and but that has been part of my plan for a while uh, and one of the reasons to take that job I went from being the country manager for fights in Sweden to take a role in, in London was again back to some of the advice from these executive search firms to say kind of to, to sit as a country manager in, in Sweden it's a very Global is a small farmer market, but you one of the things you, from a commercial side, would benefit is to have more international experience. And when the opportunity arised in fights, I, I moved to London. But as you said, I, I did when I when I resigned from fights, I, I did get some very attractive offers to stay there. So uh, I could probably have stayed with fights today, um, but um, uh, and I'm I'm very happy from my time with fights, but I'm. Uh, I think, even more happy from where we have taken Orexo. 
Moving from a big pharma company to heading a small one has advantages and disadvantages, I'm sure, that have to be weighed. To what degree does the training that you receive at a large pharma company prepare you or not prepare you, in your case, to, to make that next step? I think my training, both at Boston Consulting Group and, and also at Pfizer, has been hugely helpful. And, and I know there's, a, there's always some some consideration what kind of support and, and development opportunities are you provided with in, in um, the large pharma companies. I must say, I feel that Pfizer was very good at identifying really good talents. And if, you, if you're a very talented person, there's a good chance that Pfizer will find you and they will offer you an extensive amount of training. Uh, they will actively work with you on your career path. Uh, and I've been sitting on both ends. I've been on the receiving end and I've also been uh, in the end of my career was part at Pfizer. I was one of those who helped identify those people we should try to invest in. Uh, but like any other company, I, I think Pfizer is, is uh, finding, you can say, the top decile of, of performers, and that's those are the ones who, who get most benefit out of these training programs and relocation programs. And, and then, of course, there's a big group who, who are not uh, part of that, and, and some of them are probably equally successful and talented. But I do think there's a pretty good chance that if you're a good performer, you would be noticed and you would be provided good training. Uh, and I, I think fights uh, give you that exposure. But more, more importantly, I think coming from a, a European perspective, I think these big U.S. companies give you a kind of confidence. It's a little when you work at fights, you're, you're king of the hill, and, and there are no one at that time. There were no no one bigger uh, than us, and and that was a little the attitude. Whatever we touched, we would win. Uh, and we had the resources to do that. And, and I think that that attitude is something that probably is worth more than any training session you could have with an HR consultant or similar. When it came time for you to develop your own approach towards managing people, what did you find worked best for you at Arexo? At actually more challenging management positions before I joined Fights. But, but one thing I learned in the beginning is, is I, I, for many years, I was the youngest in my team, even as the manager. Uh, that was the truth when I was managing director of Fights of Sweden. I was the youngest in the management team. That actually was the truth also when I came to Orexo. But but taking that position quite early on, one of the things I, I learned for me, and I think everyone has to find that model, is is um, is to be humble. I, I I remember my one of my first meetings uh, as a as a line manager. I had a team around me where I think the average age was probably twenty plus years higher than older than I, I was, and, uh, and as I was in my late 20s, that, of course, is kind of near the twice stage of, of where I were. But, and, and I had this coming in new line manager full of ambition. I come from Boston Consulting Group, and, and of course, I had prepared, I know, 50 to 100 PowerPoint slides that I could show about, now this is what we should do. Uh, and I, I kind of got on my own role, and then afterwards we did a test of, of how people had bought into it. Uh, and there was, uh, I got some, one of the worst, kind of across the company where you have these survey, employee surveys, I, my team was one of those who had the least buy-in to, to the vision and strategy for my group. And for me, that, that was a big wake-up call because there's no one else who had prepared as many PowerPoint slides as I had, that's for sure. And, and what I learned there is, is I didn't really get people with me. Uh, and the the importance of actually listening and let people formulate the strategy and vision is has been 
been incredibly important and to, to try to find the time that most of the time you need to, to listen and hopefully get the buy-in from the people around you and then everything becomes much more easy. Uh, and then I think one of the critical paths for a leader is to decide when is the time to become executive and, and you're basically taking over because of timelines and others. Uh, but what I hope people will see is, is rel- would say that I'm, I'm a relatively good listener. I'm a humble. I'm quite aware where my shortfalls are. There are a lot of people who are much better at chemistry and pharmaceuticals than I am. Uh, I maybe have a little broader perspective than, than most. So, but, uh, but I think being aware when you have your shortfalls and actually listen to people to show them that respect, that's something I brought with me. I think is uh, rather work as a team leader to get everyone engaged uh, than being the one who's just running and then, oh, where did my team go? Uh, and then better, it's better change my team. I think it's more important to get them, get them with me. And and maybe that, that one employee survey was the wake up call I needed to get. Um, so I probably should say thank you for that. It's it's not always easy to find one's weakness and then make it a strength. Very, very tempting to say it's not true. Actually, I did a leadership training one was with Pfizer, which is a little unique. But it uh, for for a lot of girls, this is not unique. But for um, for me, it was, and, and fortunately for the rest of the participants also, we went out to this farm and we had to guide very, very big horses around. Uh, so there was a kind of the horse breed was one of some of the largest horses horses you can get, and, and we should get these horses to walk in in a different path, in specific patterns. And, and the interesting part was that the girls who came out with that, those were kind of teenage girls, and the horses just followed them, and then there we came. Uh, big males, all of us uh, senior managers as fights in Europe and we couldn't get the horses to move anything Uh, and one of the things that that came through is is to get a horse to move then you need to you need to show that you're the one you this is the way you have to be confident this is the way I'm going and after two days half of us at least could get the horses without even holding them we got the horses to follow around And, and I think not that an organization is the same, but if you as a leader doesn't really genuinely believe in where you're taking the company, that will come through and you won't get the team with you. But if you genuinely believe that uh, what we're doing is the right thing, people will listen and, and most people will follow you as well. Uh, then, of course, with horses, it's it's more by gestures and then maybe presence, but with people, it's also kind of the way that you present and others. But I think this genuinely believing in what you're doing i think is incredibly important to become a respected leader it's it's a hard thing isn't it i know in my life it's a hard thing to trust that what is genuine to me is valuable in some way as opposed to following someone else's more uh, obvious lead (laughs) but but i can say in life science and biotech that is much more easy than in many other places it's quite easy to say that what we are doing is actually saving people's lives. And, and I think that's, that working in disease spaces where you have a unique position and you have an opportunity to impact patients is making that storytelling much more easy than are you working in something uh, like producing furniture and all this. It's kind of, but we, I, I know that the pharmaceuticals from Orex, so if we should pull them from the market today, then thousands of people would suffer tomorrow and and that of course make it 
meaningful for everyone, those who's doing the manufacturing, for those who are developing, those who are ensuring the quality is good enough. We know if the quality of our product is, is poor, uh, people will die. And, and I think that's, that is, is much easier, I think, in, in pharmaceuticals and biotech than in, in many other industries. I, I, I don't know, I've been for seven years and I've done hundreds of presentations to investors. And while you think that your P&L is, is important when you present to investors, the storytelling part is even more important. If, if you start your presentation telling a story about a patient, or that, that makes it much more life. And, and I actually think that resonates uh, with quite a lot of uh, the people you think who's living with calculators and dollar signs in their eyes. Uh, they are much more, most of them are quite sensitive to that aspect also. What do you say when people ask, who is Orexo? Orexo is a Swedish pharmaceutical who has been who's dedicated to, to find and improve treatments for people who are suffering from addiction. Uh, so uh, the, the company today is very much founded and uh, surrounded uh, around the addiction space and where we, we are looking for different options to solve people who are suffering from opioid addiction. The foundation of the company is, is from a pharmaceutical development company. We started up as a drug delivery company in Sweden. Um, but for the last six years, we have been more and more centered around addiction treatment. And, and now we start to expand that and, and looking into adjacent areas. But it's really been uh, opioid addiction that has been the center and the core of both research and development and commercialization for the last five to six years. Drug addiction and opioid addiction are obviously, unfortunately, well-known problems at this point. But I imagine that it's not always well-known that there was a gap that needed to be filled. So when I started at Orexo, I, I knew, of course, about opioid addiction. and, and I, But it was for me, it was something I associated more with uh, addicts standing behind a, a central station in some shady areas. Uh, and... I didn't see the issue with pain medication as has become so evident today. And one of the things, I, I, there was even an article about me in a Swedish newspaper where I was interviewed and I said, I feel like I'm, I'm standing there screaming on a square about, have you, haven't you seen how many people who are dying around you? Uh, and I tried to use all kind of analogs. What would happen if as many dolphins were coming up the coast of Florida? I think the entire world would have gathered to support and, and to help finding solutions for, for whatever happens to these dolphins. But now we have young Americans predominantly who quite often come with with a pretty good background. They are well-educated, middle-income. A lot of them are college kids, get exposed to uh, often pain medications uh, either by prescription or, or by friends. Uh, and then suddenly they find themselves addicted and unfortunately quite a few of them also die. And I, I remember a special time I, I went, I was in the U.S. and I just maybe didn't mention Orexus from Sweden, but today the majority of the company is in the U.S. We have uh, most of our employees in the U.S., all of our sales in the U.S., our products are produced in the U.S. So it's, apart from the headquarter and some R&D, we are maybe more U.S. company than a Swedish. Uh, but in I went to the U.S. and I went through, I was redirected with a flight and had to go through Phoenix on the way to San Francisco. Uh, and in Phoenix, I had a few hours and I passed uh, this news desk and, and there was a headline 
I think it was on Newsweek, which says on the front line was a black front line, front page, and this is back in 2017, I think, 16 or 17. Uh, and the front line says, why are white Americans dying younger? And without having bought the newspaper, I knew the answer. That's because there are people, more and more people are using opioid addiction. And I bought the uh, Newsweek edition. It was the first number of, must be 20, 2017. But the, and then in the article, it actually showed how the mortality for the first time in, in modern times, the life expectancies were declining in the US. And I knew when I saw that front page, this is the first time it makes to the front page. And the only time I read about it before was when some celebrity overdosed. It went into the celebrity pages and it was a little footnote, now this and this rock star or hip hop star has overdosed. But now it made the front page. And since then, it has been kind of frontline news on in the US. It was part of the, oh, this must be in 16 because it was before the election of, of uh, in 16. So it was during 16 in the primaries in New Hampshire, I believe in some research, it was the number one topic for voters. And it was a hot topic in a lot of, of uh, for a lot of voters in the US was opioid addiction. And then since then, it actually had, a, had the attention that I think it deserves. And there have been quite a lot of work done both by the previous administration, but also by the current administration in the U.S. to address it. Um, but it, it took a while. Uh, and I think, but I think that single front page on Newsweek, January 16, it was before the election, was uh, really a turning point in, the, in this. And then how did you take that even clearer understanding that you had about the need and direct it towards the energies of, of Arexo? How is Arexo addressing that problem? I spend a lot of time when I go to the uh, when I go to the U.S. to go out and, and meet physicians and, and with the physicians meet patients, uh, and that comes back to some of the storytelling. Uh, and I uh, and I think some when I bring some of those stories back, both in terms of what are some of the issues we see, uh, and as a small company, this is really an advantage of being a small company. We could take some of that feedback and immediately turn it into different solutions for patients. Uh, so, uh, one of the issues with opioid addiction, which is a little, you say, a little unique compared to uh, many other disease areas, is when you go in and you start your treatment, you are an addict. Uh, and for every, if you're on heroin, it takes every four or five hours, you need a new dose of heroin. Every time you take an overdose of heroin, you're basically playing Russian roulette. You, you, you're playing with your life because in that next dose, you can have more fentanyl and others that would kill you. That means that if it takes time from the time when you get meet the doctor so you can get your medication, for every four or five hours, you have to play with your life with a new injection. And if that's the time when you had convinced yourself, now I'm ready for med- I'm ready to, to get treated, you don't want to wait because then you have basically crossed that mental barrier I'm ready to treat. I, I heard that on one of my first trips out from several physicians say, we have a big problem because the, the payers in the US, the insurance companies, they often takes one to two weeks before we can get clearance. And for that time, I'm losing a lot of my patients. So we went back and said, how can we solve this? And, and then we started a, a program for patients who couldn't get access for the first two weeks when they got access to our medication for free. Uh, and that, that literally took us, I think, four or five days from I went into the field and I come back and say, okay, this is what I heard. What can we do to solve it? Uh, I think... That is, is part of the advantage of a small company. We, we can actually react on that. And, and I think a lot of us, and 
it's so easy to get get emotionally attached because you sit there in the waiting room and, and I at least I have two do- teenage daughters. I have seen a lot of girls who are in the age of my daughters. And, and okay, it's, it's a little slip. Uh, a physician who is tre- giving them a pain medication. Uh, and then I, we now know about 10 to 15% of the young people actually grow into become addicted. Uh, and I think that's that's making it scary, but also uh, it's kind of, I, I've, it's gone beyond a, a normal job. I think it's for m- many people in my company, it's, it's, this has become kind of a, kind of, it's the purpose of, of your career is to try to solve this um, because we are seeing people that I think all of us can easily relate to. We understand now, I understand at least, this, this is not something that is for people behind the central station, or at least I start to realize that the people behind central station at once were young kids, just like my kids. Can you just give the listeners a overview of how the therapeutics that Orexo is making, how they help to address that problem? The main product we have is, is a product called Subsolve. Subsolve is a so-called combination product of two products. It's buprenorphine and naloxone. Buprenorphine is the active ingredient, which is a partial agonist, which means that it, it's, it's also an opioid, but it's what you can call a good opioid in the sense that it takes much, much longer time before it, it, it's half, half-life is much longer than heroin. You can think it's about 36 hours for buprenorphine. Heroin is just a few hours. Uh, it's very difficult to get an overdose with buprenorphine because that has a ceiling effect uh, and it's very difficult to get high. And if you already, if you and I, um, assuming that you, you're not taking any pain medications right now, but if you and I should take buprenorphine at, right now, we would probably feel some sensation of high and we could potentially overdose. But remember, those who go into treatment, they are not opioid naive, they are opioid addicts. And for them to overdose buprenorphine is, is very difficult. It's not impossible, but it's, it's very difficult. The only way that you normally could do that is that you crush it and then you inject it into the veins, so you get straight into your to the bloodstream. But that's where the naloxone is. It's an abuse deterrent. So if you should do that, the naloxone will basically bind to the receptors and, and block the active ingredients in, in buprenorphine. Uh, what we've done is we, we have developed a product that is more effective than uh, it has a higher bioavailability than some of the other products on the market it's smaller uh, test with patients so that patients uh, find them more convenient uh, and then to respond to some of the market tendency we've done we have packaged it in child safe packaging so we to the highest grade so we try to limit the exposure for children uh, we've done a lot of clinical research to see how we can improve the treatment for patients. Uh, and now more recently, we have we identified, a couple of years back, we identified one of the big issues in the US is, is before it was getting access to medication. Today, it's actually in combination with the medication, you need psychosocial support. But when we interviewed the physicians, and this is again coming back for some of the feedback I received when I met physicians, uh, together with other people in the team, of course, is we, we heard that it's very difficult to find qualified counselors. Subsolve is basically a, a replacement therapy. So if people who are addicted to heroin or to other products, if they take Subsolve, uh, they will be able to maintain their addiction on a, a level where they can live a normal life. Um, so this is not making them uh, abstinent, uh, but it's basically replacing a... a, a 
opioid-like heroin when you get high and you get withdrawal symptoms and basically in the mid interim of that in the middle you, you feel awful uh, but with subsol you can go back and live a normal life and that would most of the patients would say is we have a product that makes it possible for me to live a normal life there are other products with similar clinical uh, clinical um, effect of subsol uh, but what our product takes pride is, is to make it's much smaller than the other products that are in the market uh, we have uh, to, to safeguard patients and, and particular children. We have it in the highest standard of, of uh, child-safe packaging. Uh, so that's that's where we started. Uh, one of the, the latest that we launched is we entered into what's called digital therapeutics. Uh, and this is in short. You can say this is like cognitive behavioral therapy, but doing it online, but not with a counselor. You're actually doing it with an artificial intelligence robot. So you're... you're sessions are the ones that you're interacting with is an artificial intelligent robot that will act like a counselor a psych, uh, psychologist and it's basically been programmed by psychologists uh, and all the evidence we have is that it has a, a really strong effect the one we launched is called Deprexis for depression treatment we will launch one for alcohol addiction going down the addiction uh, uh, route and we'll launch one for opioid addiction the opioid addiction was actually where we started but we went down that track uh, we saw the two other ones which are more advanced from the company the technology company we partnered with uh, we took those products also so now we're expanding out for opioid addiction and then actually into mental disorder on a broader base and and for me mental disorder is opioid addiction is is kind of the same animal and and a lot of the symptoms and a lot of the patients are the same uh, whether you are clinic the comorbidity between addiction and depression is is sky high comorbidities between alcohol and opioid addiction is also very very high uh, so we're actually addressing the same patient population but from different angles but we're also now expanding into depression and into uh, into um, alcohol uh, addiction and misuse uh, so two new areas for rexa from from addiction uh, from where we started it's my experience that frequently founders and CEOs, when they tell that story, there's always a certain percentage of people who nod and hear it, but they, they're not hearing what you're intending them to hear for many different reasons, right? So when you make a presentation about Orexo and you finish and someone comes up and says, thank you, now I understand that Orexo is, and you realize, no, that's not what I intended. What do people sometimes investors whomever what do people misunderstand and then how do you help them to get onto the track of where you really are the usual in sweden the first question you're asking pharma and biotech is uh, so how, how long time will it take before you have to do a new ci issue uh, and we are a profitable company i've been that for a while uh, i think when it gets to the digital therapies the biggest and that's the new thing for us um, the digital therapies people still under, don't really understand that you can make money on it so, so you have this, yeah, but, but aren't they just something, a marketing gimmick you give away on top of subsolve? So, so uh, how much more subsolve are you going to, to, to sell? Where I actually think the opportunity for the digital therapies are bigger. And if you look at, for example, Deprexis, we have a partnership with a German company. They have more than 2,800 patients enrolled in 13 different trials in a in head-to-head studies again against pharmaceuticals together with pharmaceuticals with therapy adjunctive to therapy uh, standalone treatment 
and consistently they have shown positive impact on treatment results. That's more research than 95% of the pharmaceuticals that are sold on the market. But still, the perspective is, so how much more subsol is that going to sell? Uh, and I think that is, is, but that's, I think, is for every entrepreneur coming in with a new business model to a completely new space. It's difficult for people to grasp how, how does this really going to work? Uh, and I think that's, that is today the biggest misunderstanding that our digital therapy is intended to be a standalone business, earning its own money, financing its own future as when we have come past the launch phase. And, and it's not intended to be a, a combination with pharmaceuticals, but I'm pretty sure in a week or two, I, I will still probably, even from qualified investors being asked, how much, how long time will your money on the bank account last? In the age of coronavirus, how does the digital therapeutics work that you're doing, how is it affected by what's going on? So, so this is a very interesting one, because if you look at, at what happened with digital therapy, with the coronavirus, the first thing is that in, in many countries, you're, you're locked down, so you uh, now it starts to unlock in, in most countries. But you're still in a situation where you have to keep your social distance. Uh, I think most, patient, most people would be uncomfortable sitting in a waiting room, in particular with someone coughing next to you, despite having face masks and other safety equipment. Uh, so you... I think we're in, in a foreseeable future, we're in a situation where people are not comfortable of, in, of the normal way of interacting. And when you come to mental disease, this is a space where you normally sit with your counselor, you want to build a bond, and suddenly you're not able to do that. If you look at the US reimbursement system, for opioid addicted patients, when we do the calculations, the only way that the, the reimbursement you receive from the insurance companies uh, makes sense for a physician is to do group counseling. So you actually have more than one patient in one session. And in that situation, you normally sit around around the table. And now you're in a situation where we shouldn't sit around uh, in the same room. Uh, and I think there, there is a need for something to replace uh, this interaction that you have. The other, the other aspect, which I think is a little more scary and a little more long-term, if you look at how many people are actually suffering from clinical depression, both from the lockdown, both from the uncertainty from the disease, and also from potentially losing your job and, and, and the risk of economy and, and your family's future. We've seen numbers in the New York area, it's up 30 to 40% of people who are suffering from clinical depression. We've seen alcohol misuse is, is, is increasing in all areas where we had lockdowns. Seeing opioid doctors, when we talk to with opioid addicted patients, see high degree of relapse during this period. We see that patients are overdosing in a higher degree, and all of these areas are areas where Orexin have products and, and can be help uh, help the patient to suffer. So the immediate response to the opioid addiction or to COVID nineteen is are the ways to bring these products forward. The potential side effect of a, a digital therapy is uh, maybe that you are paid some money or you spend some time, but it's not like a pharmaceuticals where you have other biological side effects. Um, so we, we have a FDA has provided us with a faster access to market, and we have responded by moving the launch of some of the products forward with several months. Um, apart from that, I think for, for Subsol, the biggest issue that we have in patient physicians also saying that. They have moved to telemedicine. So today, uh, as an exception due to the public health emergency, you can actually prescribe treatment for opioid uh, misuse or dependence using telemedicine. Uh, Orexo actually has a 
a lot of, of uh, treatment alternatives to address some of the aftermath of the COVID-19 in terms of depression, misuse, and so forth. Thanks for speaking with me today, Nikolai. Thank you for inviting me to your, to your session. It's been a very interesting and actually educating dialogue. When we talk about biopharma and big pharma, sometimes it sounds like two unrelated species. One, big, powerful, and deliberate. The other, small, fragile, and entrepreneurial. But it's important to remember, many biopharma founders and CEOs honed their skills within the management ranks of large pharmaceutical companies. For leaders like Nikolai Sorensen, experience at large companies helped prepare them for the challenging, an often rewarding role of leading a biopharma company. For Nikolai and several other BioBoss guests, it's the best of both worlds. Nikolai describes his eye-opening moment at Pfizer when the company's leadership evaluation survey revealed the importance of listening and allowing the teammates he led to help him formulate strategy around his vision. The insight that came from this survey appears to be one of Nikolai's strengths in his role as a biopharma leader his willingness to listen and build buy-in to his vision for Orexo. Nikolai went on to say, if you genuinely believe what you're doing is the right thing, people will listen. He reminds us that work in any profession can benefit society, but for him, biopharma is an especially clear case, since, as he says, what we're doing is actually saving people's lives. Toward the end of our conversation, Nikolai shared his thoughts about how the coronavirus is changing the landscape around mental health, depression, substance abuse, and addiction. His vision offers hope for how the traditional pharma treatments and digital therapeutics may work together to provide alternatives for patients navigating health issues in the midst of our global pandemic. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.